My name is Fiona Zeiger and you're listening to The Migration Podcast. In this episode, we continue to speak about migrant transnationalism, meaning the ties and relationships that connect migrants with other people across nation-state borders. Our guest is Valentina Mazzucato, who speaks with Milena Belloni about the importance of exploring transnationalism from different locations simultaneously, the value of defocusing from the migrant side of the story, and about the implications of transnational ties for people who remain deeply interconnected despite leading their lives apart. Let us start by talking uh, a bit about your personal intellectual trajectory. How did transnationalism become part of your life and research? Well, it's interesting because I actually, I am a migrant myself, but when I started uh, my intellectual journey, I was not at all focused on migration. I was focused on soil and water conservation technologies in Eastern Burkina Faso, if you can believe it. But Doing this research in Eastern Burkina Faso, and I had been living there for two years and speaking with many people in the villages, trying to understand why they were using these technologies, I actually realized only at the end that I was missing a whole cohort, mainly men between the ages of 15 and 25. And when I spoke to one of the co-wives of the compound where I was living, I asked her about this, and she told me that her son had migrated to Ivory Coast, like many of the young boys in the village. So slowly I started to realize that I had been so focused on the village that I hadn't seen what was actually happening outside of the village that was influencing the village because these boys were then sending money back home. And in fact, the hut where I was living had been constructed with the money that her son had been sending to her. But I also spoke with Chamba, that's her name, about you know, the worries that she had about her son being in Ivory Coast, because there was quite a lot of violence towards migrants at the time. So that also got me thinking about, okay, there's various sides to migration and I'd really like to delve into it. So I looked into the literature as my next project after my PhD. And what I, what I realized is that the literature, this was you know, late 1990s, early 2000s, really was talking about migration in this very, dichotomous way, you know, either migrants come into a country and they integrate, or having failed to integrate, they go back home and they become return migrants. And that didn't resonate with the kinds of things I was noticing in Burkina Faso, but it also didn't resonate with my own experience as a migrant, because I migrated with my family to the United States from Italy. And my childhood was a mixture of things that were happening to me in the United States, but also very linked to people I felt very close to back in Italy. And even though I moved as a young child, the people that I was very attached to were my aunts and uncles back in Italy. And I would see them every year. I would travel every summer vacation back to Italy. So this idea that I was a migrant in the United States and very much you know, studying migration as Italian-Americans, and how they integrate into the United States. And it only resonated with me halfway because it wasn't really showing the importance of my family back home. And that's when, you know, this was the early 2000s. And that's when I started reading uh, the very beginning works on, that are theorizing the concept of transnationalism. 
And the minute I read that, and I'm hearing, you know, I'm talking about Nina Glick Schiller's work, it just, the coin fell. And I said, yes, this is it. I really believe that this can explain and help us to understand the migrant lived experience. How did you move from being an individual researcher to being a coordinator of large multi-sided and multidisciplinary research projects that really put transnationalism in practice? I am talking about projects like Ghana Transnet or uh, the Transnational Child Raising Arrangement Studies between Africa and Europe. Could you tell us a bit more about how you operationalize transnationalism in large projects like this? Yes, uh, thank you, Milena. So indeed, you know, once I realized that I really wanted to get into more into this migration topic, and I submitted a proposal and actually got it. So for my postdoc um, research, I got a proposal that allowed me to hire some PhD researchers. So immediately we were a team. Part of the team could be located where the migrants are. But part of the, the other part of the team could be located where their families are, where their friends are, where their business partners are, where their pastors are, all people who are really important um, to understand how these, let's say, transnational social fields work, um, what makes them work. So this, the, the very um, small everyday exchanges like the telephone call and what's exchanged in a telephone call, but also when a remittance is, is sent, how that remittance is then received and then distributed and spent. So you need, you know, I, I really wanted people on both sides to be looking into these very micro, um, micro actions that together compose what we call a transnational social field. I really worked from the beginning with these multi-sited designs in multicultural teams, and I should say also multidisciplinary. There's a lot of added value to working together. You do need to uh, share your data, and that's something that we as social scientists are not usually trained to do. And in my case, the way that we really made it a a co-production was also to co-author. So that's sort of my long answer to how I came to work in multi-sided and multidisciplinary teams. But I think it really requires a praxis. And that's what I've been developing since the beginning of working together is how do you work in a team in a successful way so that it really benefits the project, the knowledge that you generate, and also the individual members of the team. Thank you, Valentina. You gave us uh, uh, really good examples of what it means to be part of a transnational theme and what it means to author and to co-produce uh, research together. But can we talk a bit more about the added value of investigating transnationalism in a multi-sided way? So what kind of political and policy implication can be drawn from focusing not only on here, but also on there? Yeah, that's a very good question, Milena. I think, first of all, what's the added value of doing research in this way? I think it relates a lot to what I was saying before about being able to witness and observe the minute everyday actions, emotions um, that are part and constitute the, what is called the transnational social field. You know, transnational social field sounds nice, but it's also very vague. Like, what is this? For me, it's really about 
understanding what happens, for example, when a migrant does send a remittance, who receives that remittance? And one of our studies, we, we saw how migrants actually preferred to send it to a friend rather than a family member. Now that was surprising to us. We said, why would they, they send it to a, a, a friend that you would trust your family members more? But actually family has so many obligations that you might be a little bit less free to say, actually, I would like to use half of that remittance for my own housing project and half of that remittance to send to my mom. And I can trust my friend to do that. But if I send it to my brother or my sister, they might not agree with this and they might actually give all the remittance to my mom. Or worse yet, they might take the remittance for themselves. So we found that, for example, migrants, if they had a friend who the friend themselves had been a migrant, and so who knew right, how much work migrants overseas have to do to be able to save the money, to be able to send the remittance, then they would much prefer to have this friend actually manage the remittances. So these are these micro decisions that get hidden if, if in surveys, for example, that just ask migrants, how much do you send home? Or who do you send home to? Another example was what happens when an undocumented migrant which happened to one of our respondents here in, in Amsterdam, gets caught and gets sent to prison because she doesn't have the documentation to be able to live here. That's a terrible thing to happen to the migrant. And, and I was the researcher researching the Amsterdam field and she called me to tell me that she was in prison. Um, but at the same time, we had a, a researcher who was studying her parents back in Ghana. And we saw what these parents had to do in order to try to get their daughter out of prison. And it was an amazing amount of work. It took them out of their agricultural season so they couldn't weed when you could should normally weed a field. That means that the weeds overtook the field and they had no crop that year. Why? Because they had to move to the city. They had to try and get all sorts of documents for the migrant to be able to be uh, coming out of prison. Now, these kinds of micro actions do not come out if you don't have people on both ends, you know, to really see what happens. And, and that's really what helped me to develop the concept and theorize about the concept of what, what I called reverse remittances. That is all of the work that people back home have to do for the migrants overseas. We're always talking about the money that migrants send, but we don't see all of the work that gets done back home in the origin countries, just to show how much a policy in the Netherlands, which says that if migrants do not have their documentation, you can put them in prison. What kind of social costs does this have for a country back home? And this was presented, my work was presented at a conference in Ghana, where the uh, Dutch Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs was present, as well as the Dutch Ministry of, of Security and Justice. And when I presented this work, there was a, a gentleman from the Ministry of Security and Justice who got up and he just yelled at me. He yelled in front of the whole audience and he was saying, how can you say these things? He was just really angry. Now, I've never been <laughs> in such a situation before. And I was, um, yeah, very shocked by this, this, this reaction, but I could also understand it, you know, especially with hindsight that I was really saying something that was not, that was counter to this celebratory discourse of migration and development. And um, well, you know, soon after this conference, the Dutch Supreme Court actually revoked or declared unconstitutional some of the practices that the Dutch consulate was applying in Ghana. 
And part of my story was about these practices. And I like to think that in my own little tiny way, I might have contributed to questioning these kinds of practices that were making it very difficult for migrants to get visas. So another example, I think, which is very important is that if you think about a lot of the discourses around migrants and remittances is how much pressure migrants feel from home to have to remit and how people back home sort of have this idea that that remittances and, and money grows on trees, right? So they always ask, 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 and this puts migrants under a lot of pressure. But, you know, there are many other stories as well. But researchers, because they are always asking the migrants, only get this part of the story. I did a study that actually showed that even transnational migration studies, they still tend to really um, give much more attention to the migrant side of the story. Instead, we were on also on the, on the families who stay behind side. And we saw, for example, clear cases where mothers were living in abject poverty. I mean, really in slums conditions with no running water and very, um, very dirty water, actually. And we, because we had this multi-sided research design, we saw that the son was actually living quite okay here in Amsterdam, had a job and wasn't remitting, right? So there are other stories. It's not just the poor migrant who's always under pressure, but there's also the young migrant who might want to spend on the latest gadgets and doesn't send money to his mother, which is, you know, it, it, it's up to him. This is not a moral judgment, but it is important that we not as researchers only propagate the stories of the migrants, but also see that there's different stories. You're working now on a project called Motrail, that stands for Mobility Trajectories of Young Lives. Tell us a bit more about what led you to propose such a project. What is new about it? And uh, what are the most important findings, uh, not only in terms of uh, um, scholarly debate, but also of policy implications? Yeah, in a way, what drew me to this project was also my own personal experience. Because if you look at how migration studies study young people with a migration background, it's actually quite remarkable how monolithic the categories are that we use. That is, we use two types of categories, ethnicity and generation. So we talk of, for example, Moroccan first-generation youth or Turkish second-generation youth. And this is, especially the large-scale studies, the studies that are actually very influential in policy circles, they really only use these kinds of categories. And there again, I was thinking of my own upbringing, and I was thinking, I, did, I never felt like a first-generation migrant youth um, or an Italian first-generation migrant youth. Rather, I was really, you know, as I said before, I was engaged between the U.S. and Italy, and I made lots of trips back home. And that really made a big distinction between me and other Italian-American youth who had never traveled back to Italy. And I noticed this in my interactions with them in the United States. And I was thinking, isn't there a way that we might be able to look at young people through different ways of categorizing them? I, I think it's an in, impossible not to categorize. We always use categories in research. In, that's how our brains work, in fact, in, in society. We, we need categories to understand the social reality. But I thought, couldn't we experiment with different types of categories because different types of categories will allow us to see different things. 
And there is this whole, you know, uh, area of uh, second generation transnational migration studies that do emphasize that young people do travel back to either their origin country or their parents' country of origin and the importance that these travels have for their identity, for their sense of belonging, et cetera. But I was interested in taking this a bit further. So I was interested in, in understanding how do travels back home or to a, a, a parent's origin country actually affect the way that young people do it? How do they get along in school in, this, in the receiving countries? Or more generally, how does this affect their well-being um, or their school-to-work transitions? And it's so interesting, Milena, because first of all, we find that young people of all backgrounds, even the, those so-called native young people are traveling a lot. In fact, the large majority of these young people that we surveyed in different European countries, in Belgium, in Germany, in the Netherlands, they travel at least once every year to the country of origin. That's enormous, but we never ask about this. And that's remarkable because at the same time, you have this literature that's not on migration and not on uh, youth with migrant backgrounds. It's literature on like um, student exchanges or tourism. And they really emphasize the great value of these trips for opening people's minds, for adding to their self-reflexive abilities, for developing their multicultural skills, et cetera. But when we look at migrant kids, we look with a completely different lens and it's only about their belonging and identity, but we don't look at these other things like what does it do to their self-esteem, to their um, self-knowledge. And in fact, what we found is that first of all, travels to an origin country do not diminish with your generation. So it's not that second generation youth travel less than first generation youth. And we also find that uh, these young people are actually very positively affected by these travels home in terms of the self-confidence that they gain. You know, this self-confidence happens through like their embodied experiences. Very often they go back home and they're, they're living in much more, let's say, luxurious spaces than they normally have access to here in Europe. And if you're, you're surrounded by more luxurious spaces, then you start thinking of yourself in a very different way. Thank you, Valentina, so much for sharing uh, your, your experience with us today. And we hope to hear from you soon again. Thank you, Valentina. Thank you, Milena. It was my pleasure. Valentina Mazzucato is Professor of Globalization and Development at Maastricht University.